It's high school graduation day in Boston. Students have worked years to get here, some of them overcoming unthinkable odds. For the valedictorians, it's extra special. Some of them are one step closer to their dream of being doctors or scientists. Their photos make it into the local paper. Many of them receive scholarships or even a full ride to college. Years pass, and eventually, things look quite different for the city's valedictorians. A quarter of them wanted to be doctors, and today, none of them are. Another quarter didn't finish college within six years. 40% of them make less than $50,000. Meanwhile, valedictorians from Boston's suburbs are, in general, thriving. On this week's episode, Megan Irons and Malcolm Gay of the Boston Globe discuss their investigation into how Boston's valedictorians are faring more than a decade after graduation. It was quite clear that, you know, right after high school, the obstacles that faced valedictorians in Boston uh, piled up and, you know, really made their courses much more difficult than their suburban peers. The team interviewed more than 90 Boston valedictorians to find out what happened after they took off their cap and gown. We sat down at the onset and sort of formulated the questions that we wanted to know from these valedictorians as we were trying to find them, such as, are they better off than their parents? Where do they go to college? Did they finish within six years, which is the federal guideline for persistence in college? The investigation was born out of the desire to cover inequality. The lens of the valedictorians uh, does a couple of different things. These are students who clearly, you know, when given the tools, um, have shown again and again that they can succeed. It takes away some of the easy questions about, well, you know, did they try hard enough? Are they, you know, are they really worthy of, of success and all the rest? I think it really does show, you know, if, you know, even our best and brightest are struggling, what does that, of course, uh, say about everyone else? I'm Abby Ibiganya, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. Inequality is pervasive just about everywhere you look. And in the spring of 2016, The Globe's executive editor wanted the paper to take a deeper look at how the problem plays out in Boston. Here's Megan Irons, who covers social justice and race for the globe. Boston is a booming city, world-class education, world-class healthcare, life sciences. But it was becoming apparent to us that it is increasingly difficult for people from disadvantaged circumstances to climb into the middle class. Eventually, the paper decided to look at the city's public school system. They wanted to see if students were prepared to enter the city's growing economy and if they had social mobility. We determined to look at our brightest students in our high schools and to see where they landed up um, after high school. Did they go to college? Did they get a job? Were they able to live the American dream to the extent that they can in the years after graduating from high school? Every spring, the Globe runs a feature called Faces of Excellence, showcasing the city's valedictorians. And the team decided to follow up with the students featured in 2005, 2006, and 2007, adding up to 113 valedictorians total. Megan and Malcolm Gay, an arts reporter, joined the project in 2018. 
Before that, reporter Eric Moskowitz had been doing a few preliminary interviews with valedictorians. Eric left the Globe for the New York Times in December, and the series published this January. The reporters knew they wanted to take a comprehensive look at how the valedictorians were doing, which, of course, led to data. When Megan and I came on, we realized quite quickly that if we were going to really be able to talk about social mobility and inequality within this cohort, we needed to have a completest data set. We wanted to have a end product, an end project that was deeply driven by the, the individual stories of valedictorians, but that those individual narratives would be built upon a foundation of this data set that we were constructing. We also had questions that we wanted to answer, and I think that was really instrumental in how we pursued this project. We sat down at the onset and sort of formulated the questions that we wanted to know from these valedictorians as we were trying to find them, such as, are they better off than their parents? Where do they go to college? Did they finish within six years, which is the federal guideline for persistence in college? Each valedictorian's answers to those questions went into a database the reporters built for the project. And if a valedictorian was interviewed before the questions were written, the reporters would go back and get their answers. Keeping track of their answers in a structured way like this was essential. It allowed us to see broader patterns within the valedictorian cohort that we might not have been able to divine had we just been speaking with individual valedictorians and telling individual stories. What the data gave us was a much broader understanding of the commonalities among their stories. Before a valedictorian could be part of the data set, though, the team had to track them down. Each reporter focused on a year in their three-year sample, but finding the graduates wasn't always as easy as a simple search. One of the first things that came up for us was there was very little online presence of a lot of these valedictorians, which, you know, given their age, given the day, uh, was pretty surprising. So they turned to some time-tested reporting strategies. So it was, you know, using, you know, all the tools of investigative journalism, door knocking, Nexus, Accurant. Uh, we were writing letters. We were texting. We were talking to landlords. We were doing everything we could to find these people. It was all happening all at once. We were, we built the database um, with the questions. We were tracking valedictorians down. We were meeting on a regular basis to figure out what we were learning from each of the people that we'd reached. And we were determining the patterns as we were going on through the year. They interviewed more than 80% of the valedictorians in their three-year sample, talking to 93 of the 113 they were searching for. Here's what they found. One in four didn't graduate within six years. Nearly a quarter of them wanted to be doctors when they went off to college, but today, none of them are. 40% of them make less than $50,000 a year. Four have been homeless. They also interviewed 65 valedictorians from the suburbs around Boston. The findings were quite stark. The suburban valedictorians out-earned the Boston valedictorians. Uh, there were many more PhDs among the suburban valedictorians and many more doctors. It was quite clear that, you know, right after high school, the obstacles that faced valedictorians in Boston uh, piled up and, you know, really made their courses much more difficult than their suburban peers. Comparing the outcomes of so many different students was challenging. 
Everyone's circumstances are different, and often there wasn't just one roadblock that got in the way. But the reporters did identify a couple of spots where Boston public schools could be doing more to prepare students for college. The state recommends a program of study that includes, for example, three science and four math courses. But in 2017, only about 30% of BPS grads met the state-recommended guidelines. So at the very least, they could have um, applied these recommendations and ensure that students across the board were taking the required courses that one would argue helped them once they got into college. And even within the school system, there's disparities. The district has a few exam schools, which are highly competitive schools that students test into. These schools are much more rigorous than others in the district. Our system is structured that we have kind of a two-tier system, one in which the exam schools are better preparing the smartest kids in the district for college, and the other schools, which are dealing with a whole bunch of other issues, are dealing with the vast majority of students who need the extra work and the extra rigor. One of the people that I interviewed in the story described it this way. The kids at the exam schools are not the smartest in the district. They're the best prepared in the district. Some valedictorians didn't want to talk to the Globe. Others came around after a while or opened up right away. Some stories were just amazing and powerful. When you dig into their backgrounds, we talked to people who had been refugees. We talked to people who had lived in foster care. We talked to people who came over to the U.S. and started high school later as as an older teenager. And you instantly could hear the stories. You could hear the hardships. You could hear how hard these students worked to get to where they were? And what were some of the series of small little things that stood in their way? To the reporters, no valedictorian exemplified the trends they found more than Michael Blackwood. His postgrad life anchors the first story in their series. Michael, like about half of the valedictorians in Boston, was born uh, abroad and you know immigrated to the United States as a child. In his case, it was Jamaica, where as a very young boy, um, his mother died uh, in childbirth. That was, you know, one of these pivotal moments in his life, as as you can well imagine. Uh, and, you know, for his childhood going forward, he had determined that he wanted to be a doctor, like many of the valedictorians. Michael makes it to the top of his class at a Boston public school that's since been closed, and he gets a full ride to Boston College. In that year's Faces of Excellence display, he said he wanted to be a doctor. And then, like so many of the valedictorians, there's, you know, just a series of small episodes, sometimes large episodes, that slowly start to drag him down. He has a hard time keeping up in biology class. He said he felt like his high school didn't prepare him for a school like Boston College. His brother gets in a car accident where fatalities were involved, and he later goes to jail. Then Michael's girlfriend tells him she's pregnant. Soon after, he's working 70 hours a week as a tutor, an intern, and a Walgreens cashier, all on top of classes. Those pressures prompted him to think about, well, maybe I should go part-time in college. He didn't have any mentor or anyone that was 
versed enough in you know the uh, in, in higher education to to take pause and think well how is that going to affect the scholarship that they've given you so he goes part time loses the scholarship tries to hang on at BC for a couple of uh, some more semesters uh, but eventually is overwhelmed by work uh, family responsibilities mounting debt uh, you know a wheezing car you know all of the you know all of these you know large and small obstacles that you know had he been an upper middle class kid his parents might have been able to to absorb or the social structures that you know support him might have been able to absorb he might have known where to ask for help as it was he ends up dropping out of out of BC giving up on his dream of becoming a doctor Michael eventually joined the military to help with mounting debt he finished his degree online and graduated in 2017. Today, he's an Army Staff Sergeant based in Japan. Of the three reporters, Eric Moskowitz, who's now at the Times, spent the most time talking to Michael. Eric was corresponding with him mainly via Facebook. Didn't have a phone number for him, you know, didn't have a Skype handle for him. And there would be whole two-week, three-week, four-week periods where Blackwood would just go dark. And so it was very touch and go as to whether he was actually going to work out as, as an interview candidate. Eventually, Eric flew to Japan to interview Michael in person. Blackwood was very open and forthcoming about his life, was very generous with his time. And I, you know, I think like so many of the valedictorians, was both understanding and brave in you know, giving us such an intimate glimpse into his life. Getting Michael to talk about his life and experiences was essential. His story reflected so many of the themes they'd identified in the other Boston valedictorians. I mean, his story is really representative of many of the other themes and patterns that emerged uh, throughout our, our reporting. You know, he wanted to be a doctor. He had issues in, in, uh, in higher ed. You know, all of these various factors that brought Michael Blackwood to where he is today are, you know, reflective of other things that have happened to the valedictorians. Still, despite his challenges, Michael said he's satisfied with his life. An overwhelming majority of the valedictorians agreed, saying they were better off than their parents. Nearly 9 out of 10 said they felt like they had a fair shot. These valedictorians were valedictorians for a reason. These are not complainers. These were people who, you know, were going up, who were moving forward with their lives. Certainly they encountered roadblocks. Certainly they were you know, diverted from their dreams. But these are resilient, strong individuals who you know, are clearly quite smart as well and driven. They, their lives may not be the successes that they expected them to be. But, you know, as we write in the Blackwood piece, you know, they've, you know, many of them have navigated this incredibly complicated world to pursue, you know, another version of success. And I think that Blackwood very much feels like a success. And, you know, to my mind, he is. We were very careful in this project not to deem people successes and failures. Once they were given an opportunity to, to shine, they did shine. And what the series showed that even though they came upon a series of setbacks and a series of systematic failings beyond their control, they were still able to find a way for themselves.
The project was a gratifying experience for the reporters and for some of the valedictorians. It turned into a very meaningful experience. You know, they've been kind of getting on with the business of living for the last 10 years, haven't really had the time, luxury, or inclination to, to really go back and revisit these critical and oftentimes quite painful memories of, of how they, you know, were trying to navigate these choppy waters. A lot of the people that we have spoken with understood the importance of this project, understood the importance of their contribution to this project, and also, I think, really derived a sense of meaning out of, you know, trying to make sense of this complicated period in their life where, you know, they were making decisions, but there were these larger structural pressures that were, you know, being exerted on them as they're trying to make these decisions. And it's given them, I think, a way to understand you know, their experiences as young adults trying to make their way in the world. But trying to tell individual stories while also addressing the larger systemic issues wasn't easy. So this reporting on sort of two levels. So we're speaking with experts. We're trying to understand, you know, what are the, you know, real factors that are affecting these students? You know, what is the history of the exam school system in Boston? What is the state of STEM education in the Boston district? While also trying to track down, you know, individual students. So we're working on those two fronts. That I thought was quite challenging. They also had to deal with a shifting time element. Their stories covered the past and present. We were working on students who graduated many years ago, and uh, a lot has happened since that time. And we were also trying to write stories about some of these really persistent issues that are continuing today. So there was the, you know, how do we tell these stories in a way that both highlighted the stories of the valedictorians who graduated years ago and also say something profound and deep about the current system today. The Globe's investigation ran in January, and Megan says the response has been wide-reaching. We have heard from folks who work in education, from teachers, from activists, from former students um, who've emailed me to talk about their own experiences at BPS High School. These issues that came out of the project um, have been known for some time. And I think what the Globe was able to do and with the resources that it had was to collect, you know, for the first time in a very comprehensive and, and riveting way was to put faces on these really complex data points. Megan says the project served as a reminder for her that journalists can be agents of change. It never ceases to amaze me that as journalists, we can ask those questions and take the time to get those answers and make the officials stop and pause and figure out why they've gotten something completely wrong. And I think for this particular project, everyone's looking at why are 50% of Boston Public School students not graduating from college? And what can we, as nonprofits, as educators, as city officials and lawmakers, do to ensure that all the students that we send off to college finish and end up somewhere better than where they were when they started? Comprehensive data on student outcomes is hard to come by. I think for a lot of people, it was really surprising for me uh, even, that many of the people who work in nonprofits haven't really kept track of the students that they serve. And for the first time, in a very collective way, they're actually seeing, seeing these stories, and it's very eye-opening for a lot of people.
We've been inundated with a lot of people wanting to do more to help the students that are currently in the system, to strengthen the public school system. We're in the process now of having long-term conversations about ways journalism can not only spark debate, but bring change when it comes to equity, inequality, and education. The Globe went one step further than identifying a problem. They also included a solutions section. It covered loan repayment, closing the college completion gap, and how colleges can make their first-generation students feel more welcome. We highlighted the fact that BPS could do a lot more in terms of ensuring that all their students are meeting a uniform standard for educating high schoolers and preparing them for college in terms of getting the right amount of math and science courses and English courses and doing much better at that. And I think it's good that journalists are able to look at and highlight problems and ways we can do better. But it's also, I think, an opportunity for us to not just pinpoint a problem and highlight a problem, but also trying to help elevate ways we can resolve a particular issue or solutions that can work. Systemic problems can be difficult to cover, but focusing on valedictorians removed a few common criticisms. When Brian McGrory, the editor of the Boston Globe in 2016, you know, was really talking about how inequality, you know, needs to become a priority at the newspaper, the big question, of course, is, well, how do you tackle that sort of, you know, huge largely abstract, difficult subject uh, in a way that's really going to grab readers. Um, you know, I think that the, the lens of the valedictorians uh, does a couple of different things. These are students who clearly, you know, when given the tools, um, have shown again and again that they can succeed. It takes away some of the easy questions about, well, you know, did they try hard enough? You know, are they really worthy of success and all the rest? It's almost like a filter that allows the reporting to really speak to the structural issues that really underlie a lot of these, a lot of these stories while also giving them a human face. You know, this is the sort of project that, you know, I think that could be replicated in newsrooms across the country. I think it really does show, you know, if, you know, even our best and brightest are struggling, what does that, of course, uh, say about everyone else? And it's the sort of project that certainly takes a lot of resources, takes a commitment to quality journalism, and takes time. But I do think it's worth it. Thanks for listening. Take a look at our episode notes for links to The Globe's reporting. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And you can spend hours listening to the stories behind some of the best investigative reporting in the country at ire.org podcast. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Abby Evergania. Radio. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that already. Okay. Podcast. Podcast.